Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high rise in beautiful Beverly Hills, adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a music producer still at the peak of his game after five decades in the business. He has worked with the likes of Bon Jovi, My Chemical Romance, Kelly Clarkson, Santana, and many, many more on projects that have sold a combined 40 million albums. Hello and welcome, Howard Benson. Hello. Um, you have been a significant person in my life since 1989 or 1990. Wow. Tell me about that. I told you about it one time on Twitter. Okay. Okay. I am... You have produced so many hits and so many things you are quite rightly very proud of. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that your proudest moment as um, a music producer was not working with Pretty Boy Floyd. <laughs> On the album Leather Boys with Electric Toys. That's that's a funny one to bring up. So you want to know how that record was made, I would imagine. Well, I want to talk about a lot of things. But first of all, just are you aware that there is, or at least was, a tiny bit of a cult around that album? Yeah. I mean, not when it first came out, because we considered it a stiff. Mm -hmm. We thought it was going to sell a lot of records. We were kind of convinced they had a big following. Um, they were one of the better bands that back in the day used to put their, um, you know, things up on the posts. They used to staple their, you know, uh, flyers up. And so they had the most amount of flyers. They had the weirdest look. And I uh, I just thought, this: how can we miss, you know? So it just missed that one. But it developed its own weird kind of like I, – I, I, somebody said to me, well, what do you think about the Pretty Boy Flair record? I said, it's like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's kind of like got this cult following – that people just, they come up to me and they go, oh man, this is the best record ever you made. And I'm like, really? You know? So I actually hid from a little bit of that stuff uh, because uh, when I was doing the the hair bands, I was kind of lucky not to have really big hit records at that point. I had Bang Tango, which was kind of the biggest record I had done. At, that, went, at, that went gold, I think. I, I haven't gotten a gold plaque yet, actually. <laughs> <laughs> my, but back then, we didn't know how to measure sales. It was before SoundScan, so nobody knows what it really sold. Yeah. Um, but then I sort of reinvented myself as an alternative producer after I worked at uh, Giant Records mm -hmm. for a while and then ended up being who I am now. And so people would say, so, you know, you kind of came out of nowhere. I'm like, not really. I actually had this other life as a hairband producer. So then those records, because of the Internet as well, records started getting re you know, people started discovering those albums like that one and uh, Child's Play and. Uh, Slam and Watusi's and uh, King of the Hill. King of the Hill. You produced Southland. You produced the Tough album. That tough I know. Album. I'm familiar with your work. Yeah. The Tough album is a whole different story. Yeah. I'm not telling you there's a cult around the Tough album. <laughs> no, no. But that actually <laughs> sold more than Pretty Boy Floyd. Actually, yeah. That, that's not. not too shocking. That's yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, I want to talk to you uh, chronologically and touch on uh, some of the things you have already touched on. First of all, so where did you come from? You come from Philadelphia. You moved to Los Angeles. You're yeah. you're playing in in bands. Playing in bands. Yeah. What's, what's What's, what's your stuff like what is your well i came spot? up in philly playing in disco bands so uh and i was the youngest guy in the band i was only 17 18 i was at drexel university 
getting my aerospace engineering degree. And that's uh, I still I actually came out to L.A. and worked as an engineer for four years before I started music. So much great disco came out of aerospace. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not may not be so far from the truth actually. But uh, anyway, when I was doing disco, I learned how to arrange, and and uh, because I was the keyboard player at that time, keyboard players were the David Fosters of the world. We were the you know arrangers and guys like that. And my band followed me out here, uh, probably to their chagrin, because. Um, <laughs> It didn't really work out for the rest of those guys. But what happened was we started playing the strip around the same time Motley Crue was playing. And we were just an average Philly band with nothing really. I mean, I say this in not trying to be self-deprecating, but really nothing to say. You know, we were we were brought up well. We had good parents. We we had we weren't like, you know, strip kids or anything like that. So we're writing all these like nice happy songs. And, you know, we could have been like Naked Eyes or something like that. One of those British bands. So I kind of realized about three years into it, you know what, we're just not getting anywhere and we're spinning our wheels. And uh, But what was happening at the time, people were talking about how good the demo sounded. And I remember thinking, I was always in the room with the producer of the demos and I would always fire the producer, even though the, the investors we had would be like terrified. Like, you're firing the producer? Who are you? You're just some kid from Philly. And I was like, yeah, but I don't hear it that way. And that's sometimes why I say to a lot of bands, I was actually unproducible, which is why I became a producer. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Right. So yeah. and I'm sure you've uh, encountered a number of quote unquote unproducible people since then. Yeah. So but not as bad as me. <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, always like getting rid of the producer. But then I realized, you know, this producer has a really good life. Like he doesn't have to tour. He doesn't have to go on the road. doesn't have to. Um, and the other thing you find out is unless you're Billy Joel or Elton John or, or someone like that where you're um, the singer keyboard player you're at the behest of the singer so the singer's the guy you, you could be writing all the material but the singer's the star and i couldn't handle that because he was calling this most of the singers we had were always calling the shots and i'm like but but you're just the singer i'm the writer i'm the guy you know and so i it, know and, and it's tough i've talked to nancy wilson about that how how i mean i tried to touch on it as delicately as possible like what's what's nancy gonna do if ann doesn't want to tour with nancy even if nancy contributed god knows how much of the material right. the people don't care i mean of course they care but it's 80 percent of the way there if it's the singer and a bunch of musicians behind them that's right and i think that you know with uh chester's you know death that's going to be really tough for mike mm -hmm. because i think you know i produced chester's solo album mm -hmm. and even um and, and i would say in, the, in that case the sum of the parts on that is actually was more popular than either one of them were at, because chester's album really didn't sell that well you know it was right. more um about lincoln park and not a classic frontman situation right. for obvious reasons right but you know it's still chester you yes. know and yes. so anyway i kind of figured that out quickly and uh started and I quit my my job as an engineer, which again to my parents, they were horrified. You were raised well; you weren't supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to do that. <laughs> and uh, started producing a lot of demos, and one thing led to another, and I ended up producing TSOL. I actually met TSOL in a very Hollywood way. I met him at at the Denny's, I think, on Hollywood and Vine. Yeah, uh, that used to be there, and they were in the next booth, and I heard them talking about that they just got dropped by Enigma, and I turned around and you know. At some point, you're desperate, and you just go, I went, hey, I'm a producer. I can produce your record, and I didn't even know if I could produce it, but I knew the people at Sunset Sound, they had been nice enough to let me have studio time over there. Okay, because it's great that you're a producer. If you don't have a studio, you're only offering so much at Denny's. That's right, especially in those days, because you had to have a studio. You had to know somebody that had a studio. You had to be, you know. So I kind of threw it all together and started 
you know, going, okay. Uh, and they said, well, what can you do for us? I said, well, I'll finish your album. Maybe if Enigma puts it out. So, you know, that was my first record was Revenge, or the TSOL record. And yes. then my second record was TSOL because nothing happened between the first and the second one. So, you know, I was doing very odd things and just demos and demos and demos. And, you know, you you hone your craft. You know what I mean? You just, um, it's hard to explain that to kids who come up now in the business, how much time you have to put into it. Like some people do get luck, not lucky, but some people get opportune situations where they become, they get hits on their first try. But I was actually kind of like looking back on my career once and saying, you know what, I'm kind of glad that my big hits didn't come that early in my life. Like they came when I was 40. Then I started really having hit records, you know. Yeah, and we'll get to those. Yeah. And I adjusted, I, I had already adjusted to the tempo of the music business and I sort of realized how fleeting it can all be watching the hairband producers get extinct overnight when Nirvana came around I mean it was like watching a, a, pl- a plane crash and all the producers were on the plane and all of a sudden none of them are getting hired and they're great producers by the way Tom Worman and you know Keith Olsen and guys like that who were you know producing those bands as soon as Nirvana came along nobody at the record labels wanted anything to do with those guys yeah Bob Rock made it out Bob made it out that's right Bob yeah. was about the only guy you know and I made it out because I was not big enough right. to be known about it. So I was yeah. kind of like, uh, you know, when it was a mass extinction, I was the little <laughs> thing on the ground floating around that nobody got extinct. So I was able to kind of like reinvent myself and keep going. And then I and that taught me a lesson, actually, was to be diverse, not to be too fixed in one thing. So when I started having hits, I always look back to those times and went, you know what? I'm not going to just produce rock records. If I get to ask pop records I'm producing pop records so when I did Kelly's record and Gavin DeGraw and things like that those are what kept me more current and keeps me current is not just saying no I'm not one of these producers that goes oh it has to be this I just love making the records I mean I've done country records with Rascal Flats and things like that I think it's all the same process you know for me it is it's a I think like an engineer a lot you know like uh, linear so Okay, if you can make this record, you can make that record. The trick is to make sure you have the right people around you that can, you know, school you on what's going on in those genres. Right. You know? Okay. So. And I, and I want to I want to talk to you about that as well. No, I see. I was happy for you. Now, me and my friend Mike saw a full page ad in Circus Magazine for Leather Boys with Electric Toys, and they had you know thunderbolts, lightning coming out of their fingers, and they're standing, they're towering over Los Angeles. And we're like, right, we need that, <laughs> and we got it, and we loved it. And now I started a band. In the the band that I had in, in by now metal was crumbling, so we didn't tell other people that this is what we were into anymore. Right. As far as everyone knows, we like Radiohead, but actually our bond as people was the Pretty Boy Floyd record. And I can recall when like POD and stuff like that was happening, and I still was reading liner notes and seeing your name attached. I was very happy for you. Well, that's nice. that's, I really sincerely yeah. mean that because yeah. I I know I saw it happen to a lot of people. I've had conversations that was a weird. It's almost like some people got lost in the 60s. There's That's also right. a lot of people who got lost in like 1991. That's right. And you can still see them sometimes up there stuck in 1991. Yeah. And uh, I think a lot of it had to do with Pro Tools for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, discovering the, uh, and again, had a lot to do with my education at Drexel, being not afraid of technology. And, you know, um, a lot of producers, um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm generalizing a lot here, but, you know, there's a certain... Um, way of doing records that at that time in the music business was the way you did them tape you know uh you did the drums and you did them and you cut it up on tape and then you did the guitars and the bass and you did the vocals and then you mixed it on an ssl 
and plenty of records were done like that. When the computer came around in, I think it was 1997 when I was in when I was in Sao Paulo, there was no tape machine. There happened to just be this computer, and I was horrified myself. I was like, "What? What is this thing?" You know, like I knew records. Some records were being done, but mostly pop albums were being done like that. Yeah. So I, it was called Sound Designer. It wasn't even called Pro Tools at the time. And this would have been with Sepultura. With Sepultura, right. Yeah. A band that, by the way, is so metal and so hardcore, thinking about it in a computer is really bizarre because, I mean, of anything, a band like that wants to record on the tape. Oh, yeah. We just got, I just got lucky that there was no tape machine, you know, and I remember sitting, and I'd already worked in the computer a little bit with uh, two-track editing digitally, so I was familiar with the commands and everything, but I didn't think you could record 24 tracks or 48 tracks at once. I mean, at that time, I think it was limited to 24 to 32 or something. Anyway. um, Stone Age. The Stone Age. You couldn't even (laughs) do any editing. If you looked at the computer, you'd get a bombs, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, if you even looked at it. So (laughs) so we... I remember thinking the first day when I sat down in front of that thing, and I remember I put my hand on the mouse, and I thought, I'm going to move the first chorus to the second chorus. And my first inclination is, oh, i got to edit it on tape. And then I went, wait a minute, I could just copy and paste. That was so huge. You think about the moment, because you just saved yourself so much time and effort, and you don't need to ask the band. You didn't need them anymore. You're just like, guys... Uh, you can go out to the bar and say Apollo and come back and I'll have all this together. But don't they notice when they come back that the chorus is now the verse and the verse is now the chorus? I mean, you can sure. only pull some, I don't care how much they've been drinking. Sure, but I that was my job to to explain it, to, to be the guy. You know, I had to, you know, say, okay, I think this is better, you know? And so I, it, was a, it was definitely a learning process for them more than me. I bought into it. I was hook, line, and sinker in about five seconds, you know? And then the next record I did was Less Than Jake, and I said to Less Than Jake, hey, we're going to go to Gainesville, and we're going to do this in the computer. And they were like, sure, as long as it sounds good, we don't care. That was a big move for them to say that. they didn't. And Less Than Jake is very purist band. Oh, okay, because my impression you know? would be to buy into the public image and go, oh, they don't care, they're just stoned. You're saying uh, that they really they, they, did they care. care deeply, they yeah. were just okay with it. They were okay with me. Because yeah. I, I said, I'm going to... I'm going to bring it to Gainesville because obviously Gainesville had no studios with computers at the time. So I bought the system and, you know, invested in my la- really almost my last penny into the thing, brought it down to Gainesville and we did the record. And the the bigger thing wasn't the computer. It was this program that got sent to me. And I kind of re- I don't know why I remember these things so vividly, but I was sitting in the studio and an envelope came. Uh, somebody from Avid. Um, it wasn't Avid at the time, it was Pro Tools, sent me this p- program and it said, uh, he said, oh, you got to try this thing. It's called Auto-Tune. And I was like, why? He goes, you'll just try it. There's no, it's the beta version of it. So I remember I you know, installed the plugin, put Chris the singer and Roger through the plugin and out the other side comes a tune vocal. And you're just like, oh my God. Like this, because that's the biggest problem in the, mus- in the studio is vocal pitch. And I have great pitch because I learned how to have great pitch because we didn't have auto-tune. So when you hear this come out, first what happens is you go, I just saved three weeks off this project. But then you go, I think this is going to open up the business to anybody who can like – it's going to be more performance-based and we will fix the vocals, us. The producers. So if you got a thing, I mean, the person who comes to mind for me, not to disparage, but like Britney Spears, if you got a vocal angle, a vocal attitude. Would never have existed without auto-tune. Right. And there's a lot of people who get down on that. And I've never, I mean, to me, I mean, I like Pretty Boy Floyd. I'm not, I'm not a purist about stuff. You know, it's, there's 
there's bands that should not be auto-tuned. Absolutely. And there's bands that are really fun to listen to that couldn't exist without it. So right. what's the problem? It's a tool. It's and a seasoning. Yeah. That's right. And everything, there's always been tools we've used. You could have said, well, we shouldn't use a guitar tuner. That's not fair. You should do it by do ear. Do it by ear, yeah. You know? <laughs> so all through the history of music has been... Yeah, don't use a click track. Don't use a click track. You know, then when we got Pro Tools, it was don't use the graphic editing uh, grid so we don't play. In, you know, because like, a lot of people said just let the drums play and do it by ear still. And I'm like, no, I'm using the grid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what it's there for, you know. Mm-hmm. So that thing really, that was a big advantage for me because a lot of producers just didn't buy into it. And I did a lot of records, I think, between 98 and 2003 that I was pretty much the main guy in Pro Tools. And most guys were still on tape. And tape just wasn't translating to the sound of my records. My records started to happen because all of a sudden the vocals were awesome. The drums were awesome. The guitars were awesome. And then you go see the band play and you're like, how did he do that? You yeah. Know? And I yeah. was just like, I remember saying to my engineers, you know what? Let's not talk about the computer too much here because I don't. we're going to have this advantage for a while. Yeah, I remember you hearing, know? I don't know if, how much time you've ever spent with the most popular Crash Test Dummies album. Oh, yeah. I yeah. really happened to, I liked it and I continue to like it. Not Many, many people do not. And it was um, Jerry from the Talking Heads, I think, produced Jerry Harrison. that one. Yeah. And, and what I, an amazing producer. And it was early on where they said he's using this thing called Pro Tools. That's right. The drums are perfect. And I listened. I was like, God, yeah, it feels like a like a crib for a baby. Like you could take a nap in this rhythm section. It will never let you down. It is God they are tight. And right. it's like, well, they, I think they actually are excellent musicians, the, right. the rhythm section. But he also made it of course. perfect. Yeah. And, and, it, that, and, that was, and that's the thing that you can't. I don't think there's maybe Phil Collins could listen and go, oh, that's that's not natural. But most people, it's not something that you you intellectually know. It's just something you intuitively feel. That's right. This is perfect. Right. You want to dance to it. Yeah. That's what people. That's like to me the whole goal. Like I say to my always say, we are making records for the worst possible case. We're making records for when we are on the beach and there's a boombox that's forty feet away. What are you he- what are you really hearing? The vocal and the beat. Mm-hmm. That's it. You mm-hmm. can't really hear anything else. It's it's all washed away by by extraneous noises, you know? Right. Or you walk through CVS and you hear the speaker up there. What are you hearing? The vocal and maybe the, and the beat. You're not the rest of the stuff you hear it but you're not it's not affecting the success of the album. Yeah. And you st- I started to kind of think that way more and more and more. Now of course People have sort of gone, well, we'll just have Howard do the vocals and the drums because, you know, that's all that matters to him. (laughs) But the (laughs) fact is it all matters because we want to make great records. Yeah. But when you talk about it to the record companies, really what matters is to them is the commercial aspect of it, which is really the vocals, you Mm -hmm. know. And so autotune was a real big deal. I mean, that was like – now there's, of course, other ways to do that kind of stuff. But, you know, um, I would say so many of the artists wouldn't be around now if we didn't have that plug-in. You know, Cher kind of messed it up for a while because she overused it as an effect. Yeah, she tipped her, she showed everybody the trick. Right, the trick. And everybody was <laughs> like, you know. And now what's funny is that when I don't put auto-tune on, some artists go to me, you've auto-tuned me. I'm like, no, that's actually how you're voice. You're so used to auto-tune that <laughs> yep. you don't know what it sounds like without auto-tune. Right. So, <laughs> Yeah, you're almost auto-completing the sound <laughs> that's right. in, your, in your own brain. <laughs> Uh, well, let's talk about some of the projects that you've done in in roughly uh, chronological order. Well, in not chronological order, congratulations on the number one single, The Mountain, from Three Days Grace. Yeah, that five is, weeks at number one. Very good one. So let's talk, I guess, um, about making 
hit records, to what extent can you say, okay, we've demoed 10, 12, 13 songs, we think these three have a chance. Is there a difference between saying, let's try to make this the best possible recording of the song and let's make this a hit? Yeah, I think, you know, the hit record is a very, if we all could make them, we'd all make them all the time. Mm -hmm. But um, the difference is sometimes you, like I always, again, try to explain to my artists, I'm going to put you up at the plate and you're going to get a great swing. But the ball may go over the fence or there might be a, a puff of air and it gets caught and you're out. And that's sometimes uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. That is something that we can't do anything about. Yep. But we're going to do our best job in the studio to get you to have that. And I think the word uh, – a long time ago, Keith Olsen, who was a mentor of mine, said to me, you know, the word song in Latin is form. means good form. So we got to start off with good form. You know, So like, you don't want to put out – Generally speaking, because of people will say, "What about Stairway to Heaven?" You know, <laughs> you don't want to put out seven-minute songs, right? We're dealing with a, a very short format of three minutes, and we're really dealing with, frankly, about thirty seconds. So, if you can't get the first thirty seconds right, it doesn't matter what happens after that, because you're dealing with like the intro, verse, and chorus. So, a lot of times, I'll never even listen beyond the first chorus when I get a song. If I don't like it by the first chorus. I'm not going to like it by the second chorus. So I'm very focused on liking it immediately, you know? And Now, is that for stuff that you want to work on or stuff that you think can be successful? Because certainly, there, there, even even for stuff that you would just choose to listen to in your private time, there must be things that take oh, you no, a second. Oh, no. Well, yeah, that's a different thing. Okay, like, all right, all right. like album records and things. Yeah, when, yeah, I, yeah. when I'm not focusing on stuff. But for, like, critical listening, like when I was doing Rascal Flats, we had one day where we listened to 102 songs in one day. And we didn't listen past the first chorus on any of those things. So we had publishers coming in one after the other. So it, it has Pitch, to pitching hit you. songs. Pitching songs. Okay. So if it, I mean, you know, if you can't get that chorus to be compelling and to make you, what we're selling is feelings. So you have to feel something. Mm-hmm. And I'm really in touch, or I became more in touch with the way I feel about things. Like I get very emotional listening to music because I have to. It's almost like if I don't feel sad or happy. Or, or pissed off, uh, especially with metal records. I bet I got to get really the testosterone, like, like, yeah, you know, you have to feel those things because that's what the listener, that's what you're selling the listener mm-hmm. is the feelings. You're not selling them technical stuff. Nobody cares about the other stuff. You know, they want to know, you know, I put this Three Days Grace record on, man, it's awesome. That's, that's kind of, the win, that's the win right there, you know? Right, not so, to get too high, you know, highfalutin about yeah. it, but I, I believe that there's, like, take a song, I don't know, like, No Woman, No Cry. Like, everybody loves that song, right? right? Yeah. So there has to be something inside of us that we all share emotionally because right. we're all able to connect to that exactly. song. And yeah. so what Bob Marley was able to accomplish was to make a form, you know, an outward projection of a feeling that he had that everybody can say, oh, thank you. I feel that way, too. Right. So it has to. It I has call to it ha- the truth that you have to tell the truth. Mm-hmm. And, and Dylan had a great co- quote. He said, three chords in the truth. That's a hit song. That's also a hair metal album, actually. Is it really? <laughs> From Big Bang Babies, if you want oh to get real God, deep here. that's funny. Remember, the, remember Carrie yeah. Kelly? I actually have a list of, by the way, I made a list of all the hair bands that were ever signed. Uh-huh. I should send it to you. Please And do. It's, it's hilarious. I made it with uh, somebody, and I keep having like Andy Gould, all these people add to the list. So now I've got every hair band that's ever been signed. I think there's 380 of them. Mm-hmm. And the bands all have similar names. 
a lot of, a lot of double X's, double X's slick, then. toxic, and yeah, yeah. <laughs> like they couldn't think of anything or Heaven's Edge, Heaven's something. Well, what know. was different about that, as opposed, which I think is a turnoff for many people. Lots of things about that scene are a turnoff. Is there was some sort of platonic ideal of what it was supposed to be, right. and all the bands were chasing that same thing. That's, That's what right. I would say. I don't think it was so much the copycat thing because. Again, I, I personally knew bands who took the Pretty Boy Floyd album in to cut their demo and said, we want our guitars to sound like this. We oh. want our drums to sound like this. And it wasn't because – you'll have to take my word for it. It wasn't because they're like, we don't have any ideas. Let's just take these guys' ideas. Yeah. It was because they're like, these guys did it. This is what we've all been kind of trying to get to. The guitars were so much heavier on that album. Right. And that's the thing. It's known as this huge pussy hair metal album. Those were like – Master of Puppets level distortion on those guitars for yeah. these teen. Anthem. A lot of that was Christy Crash Majors, the so, uh, guitar player. So he because that, that's that was innovative. Yeah, he was very uh, he was the really talented guy in that band. I okay, mean, not to put the other guys down or anything. No, no, but, no, no. But Christy uh, was sort of like he wrote the single, which was um, uh, what was the single? Well, there's two. Rock and Roll is going to set that the one. night on fire, and then that. I want to be with you is the ballad. Yeah, and you know about there was a whole publishing issue with that record. I don't know if you ever heard about that. But well, it, like half the songs were they had a different guitar player, Ariel. and then they booted him, and that was still on the album. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Leather Boys was from some whole other band that maybe had really been before that. Yeah, it was. You know, the did, band asked the band came over to my house in Encino mm-hmm. and asked me. I'm not kidding. Them and their manager came to pull me over to the street corner, and I just met my wife, and they said. We need to buy Ariel out, and we need eighty thousand dollars. And we thought, because how much you love us, that you'll take out a second mortgage on your house. And I just thought, you got your crazy, <laughs> you know. But I was like looking at the manager and Steve Sex Summers, and yep. I was like, so how did you did it get to this point, you know? And they go, well, we didn't tell anybody, but this other guy wrote most of the songs, and we kicked him out, and then we just did them all. Mm-hmm. Never gave him. Credit? No, I know the band and was called Doll. I've got Doll. the I've got the demos. Yeah, yeah. Well, that came that hit the record. See, that actually had a lot to do with the label being a little disinterested because they were kind of lied to. To be honest, they oh, thought right. it was all written by Steve and and Christy. Mm-hmm. So when they got the record, they were like, "Wait a minute, you didn't write any of this stuff." So except for the single, the rock and roll, that was Christy's song. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, yeah, the sound, the guitar sound was Chris. Chris Christy was great on that one the background vocals by the way and a lot of the lead vocals were sung by this guy Phil something or other he's on the credit he's credited up in upper state New York guy because we did the record in Philly mm-hmm. actually he sang most of the vocals on that record he was saying it quadrupled he was like the back he was he's like, the backing yes not the lead not the lead because I was shocked I mean this is pre-auto-tune yeah. I, I've seen we Steve. quadrupled his vocals okay I stole that idea from Rick Browdy mm-hmm uh, who produced Poison. Yeah. And I had heard that Rick had quad, uh, because I guess Brett wasn't a great singer at the first look with the cat dragged in. He was having sure. trouble. Yeah. So um, he said, yeah, I just quadruple them and the melody line comes out of there because there's four vocals and, and somewhere the melody comes out. And I was like, I wonder if that works. So with, with uh, Steve, I just said, sing it. Oh, let's sing it again. Sing it again. Sing it again. And then I just combined them all into one big glob of vocals wow because a double you know, double you can usually tell i think four to the average person i think if you wouldn't know it but if i told you this is this and that's that you can yeah. double is yeah, we did four because <laughs> rick said he did four and i yeah. remember thinking okay that must i didn't know enough at that point mm-hmm. i was just like okay four yeah because steve has trouble had always had trouble live and you, i mean the album the album performances are perfect i loved your keyboard flourishes i mean oh, yeah. i don't want to just make this about pretty boy floyd um no, let's let's <laughs> Dude, let's do it. I mean, tell me every single last story. Yeah, I'm sure you would. Uh, well, the drums were the drummer. 
you know, uh, not bad drums, not bad drums. The bass player, though, that was another bass player. That is not surprising. Yeah, Vinny was a uh, just a scene guy, you know. So uh, yeah. yeah, we had to replace a lot. Of, I think on "I Want to Be with You," that was a separate bass player and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I think that was pretty common that the bass player yeah. was kind of the guy who could make flyers. Well, what's funny is I I wanted to go home and see my parents in Philly. So when I was about to do the record, I thought, well, I'll just do this in Philly. So I dragged the band back to Philly, and we did it at KGM Recorders. And I took them downtown, Christy and Steve, and I have a picture of this somewhere, to a cheesesteak place on South Street. And, you know, Philly is not where you drag two guys dressed like girls with makeup. They were at the ex- very extreme, extreme end of end. that stuff. Yeah. And we walk into the cheesesteak, and they got... <laughs> Like, I can't even say on the air what people were saying to them. They right. were called every bad word. And I was thought we were going to get a good fight. You know, and these are my hometown people. You know, like, I'm like, come on, man. Don't do this to me. You're going to, like, you're going to get me in trouble or something. So we had to leave the cheesesteaks and we just left, got out of there. And my friend who was with me said, that was a really bad idea. I was like, yeah. And yeah, next time get the cheesesteaks delivered. Delivered to the studio. <laughs> but lyrically, I mean, that was what half of their songs were about, was if you can't handle the way I look, then, you know, I'm still not going to stop rocking. So I That's guess right. they were, I guess that was very deep. So I guess they were living. Well, it was funny. I just worked on the Motley Crue movie. Yeah, The Dirt. Yeah. The Dirt. And I, uh, I've become sort of like a slightly friendly, you know, with Nikki, like mm-hmm. just because he lives near and, and we have the same management company. Okay. And I said to Nikki, I said, you know, I actually did work on a, on a Motley Crue song on the Pretty Boy Floyd record. It was Toast of the Town. And uh, that song was such a great song. You know, the Pretty Boy Floyd version is way better than the Crew version. And I love Too Fast for Love. That's their I, best album. I agree. It's a million times better. It's a better, million times Howard. better. Yeah. yeah. It's my favorite song. On, actually, my favorite song. I thought we should have put that song out as a single. It's, yeah, it's a, you know. It's a solid tune, dude. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. There's, so, Nikki, uh, we mm-hmm. actually had a, it's interesting because you sort of have to relate to an artist sometimes just by some kind of common ground. So, um, but I ended up doing for uh, Nikki for the Motley Crue record. I did. Uh, I recut. Um, let's see, what did I recut? Uh, Shout of the Devil. What do you mean you recut? Well, it? We, for the movie, the way it is, there's performers playing the parts of the band. So what we needed to do is recreate Motley Crue circa 1983 at the Starwood. Uh huh. So it had to be authentic sounding, as but not them. We wanted to do it with other guys. So we found. Crazy enough, this guy named Timmy Cherry, who's an LAPD uh, underwater rescue diver, but he plays in a band called Motley Inc. It's a and he sounds like Vince, and he's this huge guy, muscle bound, like really, and the nicest dude you ever met. With drives a Corvette, and he comes in and he opens his mouth and he's friggin' Vince, and you just look at him, you can't believe it. You just can't believe this guy's Vince Neil, right? And so luckily we got him, the, the producers found him, and I had the great musicians, of course, Phil X and guys like that playing on the record, and we were able to get a great sounding recreation of Motley Crue. We did that one. And so we you did, did a, a studio, studio recording that would pass as a live performance in a movie. Of them at that point in their career. Because if you watch the Us Festival that they do and stuff, it's pretty gnarly dude they're so yeah. bad they're so bad i i've told the story a million times like i shoveled snow one winter so i could buy a bootleg of motley crew on the theater of pain tour at nassau coliseum yeah and i just remember like my dad just being dumbfounded first of all at the obscenity but then right. just just being like why would you work all day for this and you get older and you can put yourself in your parents shoes and you're like he had a decent point yeah well you know i didn't again i was in a band when they came out mm-hmm. and, and so i remember thinking Okay, I'm into this band with Dr. Feelgood. 
because there's a great production and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But for the movie, I had to go back and look at Theater of Pain and all those kind of records and all that. And I remember calling Nikki up and I said, you know, this stuff is so, for the moment, was really on point for what was happening at the strip at the time, you know. They, he was, they were able to channel that sort of bad boy goth, meets goth meets whatever they were doing. And he did it in such a simple way that it was easy to get, you know. Yeah. With really like a singer that was, you know, having to problem. You know, he wasn't great at that time. He ended up being great on Feel Good. He sounded awesome on that record, you know. Yes. I thought at least, you know. But Bob, Bob was yeah. a great producer too. Right. You know, I think Worman had his challenges with them, you know. But um, And I think the first record was Roy Thomas Baker who had come in and remixed the first album of theirs. Which for, was, for the Electra release of Two yeah, Dice for Love. Yeah, yeah. But that record actually, it holds up all right, you know. I mean, it's I think, for the I moment. I think it's the best one. Yeah, in in retrospect, and they just had a weird thing because I think Nikki wrote a lot of the guitar parts, and Nikki was not a guitar player, and just so much of the hair metal was was bar chord based. And I'm not saying that they weren't, but he would write these weird like two strong riffs on like the uh, two string riffs on the G and the D string. And we had it, to learn all that stuff. I know what you mean. Yeah, he actually corrected us on a few things. They were not a guitar player. Right. They were not guitar player guitar riffs. Yeah. And it just made them unique. It made it sound different. Yeah. And they were writing about stuff that was very, um, you know, street of the moment, you know, stuff. But my band's across the street doing happy, happy <laughs> Philly, happy Philly guys, you know? Yeah. So I remember thinking, yeah, we're we're not going to succeed in this band. <laughs> but I've heard it said that um, that was a great scene to not succeed in because you got to have a lot of the fun. Now, it's great to be Motley Crue, but to be one of these bands that, you know, I could name a million who, oh, yeah. who did get the deal and then got stuck in that vortex forever and you can still see them at the Rainbow on Thanksgiving. Oh, there's plenty of them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's real for me to see them, but, you know, it, you get to have a lot of the fun. I was talking to uh, John Jonathan Daniel, who was uh, Electric Angels, and he sure. was Candy before that. I produced Electric Angels. Did you really? Yeah, I did. Uh, I produced his band. Wait. You didn't produce it? Candy. No, that's no I didn't produce you. Candy. Yeah. Wait, was it Electric Angels? No, it was a guy who was in Electric Angels. Who was the singer? Uh, I think his name was just Shane. Shane. You know what? I am so confused back. I don't remember. Uh-huh. But I think I did something with that band. Yeah. Electric Angels. I remember that one. Yeah. And Jonathan said you know. it was a great. He said, I had, you know, we I had a record deal. Right. Girls like me too. I went to all the same parties. But then when it was over. It was over. I had to pick up my bags and go somewhere else. Yeah. And he feels very thankful for that. Well, Seattle's thing just destroyed it. It was, uh, it was, oh, it was almost. You know, I actually have a theory about this that I don't know if anybody cares, but I think Sound Exchange, I think Sound Sound Scan mm-hmm. came out the same year Nirvana came out. It mm-hmm. was ninety two. Mm-hmm. So we did not know what records were selling. We just thought we knew because the labels would would make up sales. They would go to Tower Records and go. Well, here's like uh, 200 Motley Crue records, but say you sold 400, and you can keep these 200. So there was all this like shenanigans going on. And they could also level, um, um, rank them by how many they shipped. That's right. And so I know Car- Carly knew. Simon had a bunch of That's fake That's exactly hits. right. Yeah. So I remember the day SoundScan came out, this guy, they, the, the whole chart went upside down. All of a sudden, there was no hair bands, and there was this guy on top named Garth Brooks, and nobody had ever heard of him, right? And he was actually selling all the records. So... Nirvana, I think that, that not only did the hair bands get caught in the musical thing, but it got caught in the fact that they couldn't mess with the charts anymore. They couldn't fake a Warrant record being at number three 
or number four. You just couldn't do it. Hey, right. this is what we're really selling yeah. of this stuff, which and is it, nothing. <laughs> and it's the, the kind you know? of the beginning of the tail end of the monoculture where if it's on radio all the time and it's on MTV all the time, well, then everybody – that's weird. I feel like I don't think Cherry Pie is that great of a song, but everybody else must love it. I really did like it. No, I like Cherry Pie too. Yeah. I mean, Uncle Tom's Cabin is probably – I mean, he did, had some solid songwriting yeah, on that album. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Very Jamie shame was, what happened to him. It really you – know. and there's an example of a guy where if you – if you had it to do all over again, was it worth the three-year run for the the wreckage that, that came after it? Yeah. You know? He didn't survive, and a lot of guys... Uh, I mean, give Motley Crue credit, man. They were able to re- resurrect mm-hmm. and do a good legacy thing in their lives. They made good... You know, did okay on their touring and all that. But some bands just never... Maybe they didn't have enough hits, but Warren had a lot of hits. I mean, they weren't without hits. He had to wait it out. I just read an interview with Michael McDonald that he just put it so in such a funny, quick way. He was talking about in being in the 80s, and he said all of a sudden we were old and creepy. Right. And he just had to wait it out until it became retro and cool again. And if you weren't that big to begin with, then you know, your comeback was only going to be so huge. But I can remember Janie, you know... When they're only on their third album and their second one had been a top five album, apologizing before he performs Heaven, which had been a hit song five years earlier. And he goes, look, I know a lot of people are going to laugh at me, but I wrote this song and I love it. So screw everybody. I mean, that's how he played it. It was I I, I can't really think I guess disco, the backlash against disco. But then look at Nile Rodgers. That's right. Right. And Madonna and all they all came out of all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, my career has been like that. I sort of have a, a resurgence of um, of alternative, like my chemical romance kind of sounding stuff. Uh-huh. In fact, the band I'm producing now, Palisade, literally sounds like they could be a band from 2002. Uh-huh. It's got that alternative guitar thing with the Mesa boogie sound and the whole yeah. bit. And I'm like, wow, what did you, what were you guys listening to? You know, oh, we love your starting line record. Uh-huh. I'm like, you do like I don't even remember that one, but, you know. But uh, but it's so funny because I think there's a little bit of that for producers too. That you, like, I know when I'm going through one of those things where you go, okay, everything's going really great, but you know there's going to be a trough in your career. You, he's right, Michael McDonald. You have to wait it out. You just have to be confident enough to mm-hmm. know that eventually, you know, if you do the right music and you stick to it, you'll be fine. And that's happened to me like three or four times now. So right, but know. somebody's got to tell you that the first time. I'm sure the second first time's one, brutal. I can only imagine. So yeah. I, I really do want to touch on some of the other albums that yeah, you've made. Sure. We talked a little about about Pod, that My Chemical uh, album. I, I when I first got this job before I was even on air, I used to just do like office stuff and loading audio stuff, and it was frustrating and I didn't like it. And I would actually give myself breaks where I would just listen to uh, Helena as loud as I possibly wow. could. Yeah. It, my God, that chorus, it just seems like you, uh, it's like when you drink a Gatorade, it's like wetter than wet. That chorus is like louder than loud. It's like bigger than big. Yeah. It just it just seems like you packed I, I kinda more. I kind of knew that one was good. That was at a the time. good one. I knew it. Like yeah. It was one of those things where I knew, th- I kind of had a pretty good feeling about that. When I first met Gerard, I remember, I remember at this point in your career, I'm 20, 10, 15 years in, you could sort of spot them. Mm-hmm. Or you can spot them not being stars. Yeah. But I took one look at him, and I remember thinking, this kid is a star. Like, he just looked. I couldn't tell if he was really a guy or a girl or what he was. But he was like, and he was focused, and he wanted, and he was a comic book drawing. He was really an artistic guy. And he didn't care about his 10 fans. He wanted to have 10 billion fans. Like, he was really motivated. And I remember when we did that record, 
we were lucky to have good A&R guys. We had good label. Warner Brothers was firing on all cylinders. And um, we just made that record quickly. It was done within three to four weeks. And Rich Costi did a great job mixing some of that stuff. And um, like my wife always says, it, I, we didn't know what was really happening until she walks into Warner Brothers. And there's this massive poster up on the wall of these guys. And she goes, did you produce this band called My Chemical Romance? I'm like, yeah. She goes, they're going to be huge. And you could tell it was a it was one of those moments, you know. Yeah. So my kids' friends came in to the house dressed as like Gerard, uh-huh. and I was like, "Wow, this is like art imitating life, or right. imitating art." You know, mm-hmm. you so, created uh, monsters. You created a monster with him. So <laughs> yeah, that was a fun one. Uh, Flyleaf, that's I'm so sick was not a, a huge hit, but uh, she's such a talented singer, and I I, I like yeah. that project. That was cool. Interesting, pro- interesting story that was almost dropped. Mm-hmm. That James, uh, the NR guy, called me up and said, uh, "I think that this band." I'm not sure that we have the songs. I'm not sure they're... Nah, 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 nah. Go see them at the Whiskey. So I saw them at the Whiskey, and I thought they were terrible. They could barely play. And I said, James, that was a bad move, me seeing him at the Whiskey. Now I don't even want to do this record. He goes, just please do it. And I said, okay, I'll do it. And the first song I delivered was sick to him, and he couldn't believe it. He goes, oh, my God, what happened? How'd, how'd you pull this one off? And then I sent him uh, the better, the bigger, biggest song on there was um, uh, I, uh, All Around Me. Mm-hmm. That was almost a pop crossover. And she had this magnetism. She was a believer in God so much that it came through all the lyrics. Like even though it was a, you know a secular record, it was it still didn't come off like that. So there was a, and I've produced. I'm Jewish. I've produced a lot of Christian bands. So I'm sort of like aware of when I see lyrics like that could be interpreted two different ways. And she was really good at that. She really had a way of sort of like appealing to a wide audience, mm-hmm. but not but still appealing to people who are believers. Yeah, you know? if you want to read this in a faith-based way, you can, but if you don't, it's not limited That's right. to that. Right. Um, bon Jovi, you did an album, on, a song on their greatest hits album. What do you got, the song, yeah. Yeah, and then I, you, I want to talk about that in conjunction with the, you did a, a song with Santana yeah. and Chris Cornell. Yes, we. I did a Chris Cornell song as well, as a solo, on That's a solo right. record. Yeah. yeah. So you... Um, have said that you're comfortable with okay you guys go get a beer I'm gonna shuffle some stuff around what's the difference with having creative like real noticeable I'm not adding a you know a backing harmony here I'm I, I want to make substantial changes and, and b- between working with a flyleaf and working with a Carlos Santana you know I think that if they've hired me they want me to be the guy so I have to assume that going in you know and um Carlos was specifically hard for me because I was grew up playing Carlos Santana songs and I was a huge fan. And so when I walked in the first time, I was a bit of a fanboy a little. I had to kind of, you know, go into the men's room and go, okay, okay, okay. It's Carlos Santana. You know, I'm the producer. It's Carlos <laughs> Santana. Yeah. Okay. So I came out and I was like, okay, this is what we're doing. These are the songs we're doing. And uh, he was fine. He wanted to be, he wanted that where he got um, in his mind the important thing were the guitar solos and he wanted that his say over what was good what was not good he wanted um the sound of the guitar to be what he wanted so there were certain things that he didn't care as much about which where he figured the producer was going to do that he's had a lot of producers so you know it was up to me to get a great backing track pick the right material hopefully with him he was pretty he was pretty good about most of that stuff but he wasn't he wanted those guitar solos and that sound to be his. He was very aware of what he wanted. He's, you know, like he's a true artist. Like he didn't talk in terms of notes. 
We never talked about chords or notes. He talked about feelings and things. And Did he tell you that there was a spirit of an angel that was guiding the recording session or anything like that? No, but he did tell me that Morrison showed up on one of our records. Jim our, Morrison. Yeah, because we were going to do – my record was a um, recreation of old of guitar sounds, songs, right? So me being a huge Doors fan, I took advantage of the situation, and I said, hey, let's do a Doors song, uh, Light My Fire. It's like my favorite song ever, so – now, Light My Fire is not a guitar song, really. No, right. But nobody said anything, so I figured, okay, this is going to be fun. I can get Carlos Santana to play Light My Fire, and I'll get Manzarek in, because mm-hmm. I knew Ray at the time. And uh, we started recording the track at Sunset Sound at the same room. Where they'd done the original? Yeah. Oh, how cool is that? Uh, and, you know, I'm like Yiddish word, kvelling mm-hmm. <laughs> over this, you know, like, oh my God, this is all working out. Like, I could never imagine this like 30 years ago. It didn't work. It was a disaster. It, it, the first five seconds, I knew we were in trouble. It was the Bossa Nova beat that is in the originals thing. Mm-hmm. The band just was interpreting it differently. Carlos was not getting it. And I pulled Carlos aside and I said, Carlos, this isn't happening. He goes, Jim does not want this to happen. And I was spooked, really spooked for the first time. I don't believe in any of this stuff, right? But I was spooked, and I remember I, I went in the other room, and I called Clive up, and I said, Clive, it's not going to work, light my fire. He goes, well, find another door song. I said, okay, why not Riders on the Storm? Because I figured, okay, Carlos likes E minor A. He likes the 2-5 progression, because mm-hmm. that's in a lot of his songs, Oh, You Come Ova. Like, I knew enough of his material to know that Soul Sacrifice, all these are the same chords, but different keys, right? So I went back to Carlos. I said, why don't we do Riders on the Storm, and maybe I can get Chester to sing it. And he goes, okay. So we did that, and that was flawless went down in one take because it was more he was more comfortable just jamming through that like my fire actually changes keys a bunch of times it goes from a minor to f sharp minor then then changes keys to g a and d does it yeah oh i've not been giving robbie krieger enough credit yeah no it's an amazing verse it's a bossa nova verse. it's based on my favorite things so it's uh-huh. okay. Yeah, that's what it's based on. So um, I've heard Manzarek speak, and and having Ray in the studio. So I brought Ray in to play on Riders, and I gave him a Vox organ, and I said, uh, "So that was fun, you know, to have those guys in and do that song." And then Chester did an amazing job singing that, and Cornell I think sang "Whole Lot of Love" on that record. Yes, that's exactly and right. And he was, oh my goodness, it was weird to have them both gone, you know, and uh, having produced both of those guys and. And so suddenly, and well, we were at Cornell's funeral, and then Chester was at that funeral, and then he's gone. And the whole thing was, uh, I mean, I spent a lot of time with both those guys, you know, as a producer, not as a friend, you know, but I knew them professionally, and professionally, they were professionals. They didn't mess around, you know, they got in the studio, they were ready to go. Cornell, especially, was unbelievably right on first take every time, you know. I mean, he warmed up, they both were. You know, from they weren't slackers at all. That's why they were so good. Like people don't give them enough credit for that kind of stuff, like doing the warm ups, doing the, you know, looking through the lyrics, talking about the music. Where, where are we going to do this? Where are we going to do that? We're going to put the breaths, things like that. You know, but they were both amazing at it. You know, and I have to imagine you've worked with or encountered professionally some people where you go, this this guy or this lady's a, a bit of a loose cannon. I guess it wouldn't. And if something tragic were to happen in their life, you'd say, well, yeah, that that guy was kind but of, but not those, guys. but not those guys. No, that's what was so shocking about it. I've had other singers where I've thought this guy's not going to last five minutes, right? After he gets out of here, you know. Um, I mean, I went through that a little bit with Scott Stapp. 
where I wasn't sure what was going on with him because, and he's actually really righted his life and become, you know, clean, sober for a long time now. Mm -hmm. But he was in, you know, you never knew what was going to happen to him after he left the studio, you know, he was uh, even, even in the heyday. Well, I produced Full Circle. That record, Creed record, was 2008 or something like that. Then I did his solo album. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was just a lot going on in his life. And he was still dealing with, I think, I think when you're that big of a rock star and you're misinterpreted, I think, you know, he, everybody thought they were sort of a Christian rock band, but they weren't. I mean, he was just a lead singer from, like, the Tremonti found in high school. You know, and, and the big time hits so big, bigger than you can even imagine. Yeah. It it's hard to handle the financial part of it, all of this. You know, I'm very, like, lucky that I have a financial brain. Uh-huh. I've been able to, like, invest well and take care of my family. But I've watched other people not do that. And I learned a lot from watching this the destruction that can happen in our business from people who are, you know, they take their first advance and they go buy jet skis, you know, instead of putting it in the bank or something like that. And, and I mean, that's just natural rock and roll behavior. But I didn't want that for me. <laughs> Well, you know? that's why you're appreciating. I heard Tremonti had a waterfall in his living room. Yeah. <laughs> but Tremonti's also an amazing um, survivor. Uh-huh. You know, like he's he, he spends a lot of money, I'm sure. Yeah. But he also makes a lot. He's right. a touring machine, that guy. And, yeah, look, they're uh, still going. They're ama- it's amazing what yeah. he's done, you know. Um, and he's a brand, Mark, you know, for and uh, for PRS, I think, is still this guitar guy. Yeah, yeah, he seems know? Paul Reed Smithy. Yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of it, like, you know, with singers, yeah, I didn't expect those two guys at all yeah. to be the guys. You know, we only have a, a minute or two left. Um, sure. that, uh, boy, that was fast. Yeah, I'm, this is I'm talk for an hour. Really, yeah, I'm really enjoying talking to you. Uh, uh, Daughtry, uh, what makes a five times platinum album tick? Like it's teamwork. Okay, we had I had I had a great first of all I had Clive Davis, the Clive greatest Davis. music guy in the world. I had Pete Gambark, who at that time was coming up and now he runs Atlantic Records A&R he signed 21 Pilots and all that show tune stuff I had Ashley Newton I had great A&R guys and I also had me and I was confident at the time I was really on top of my game and I had an artist that was not only a singer but could write material he wrote Home and all those great songs so we and I also like I almost passed on that the only reason I did a record was my wife made me do it because she loved she fell in love with him on TV oh no kidding and the whole time I'm like Nah, I produce my chemical romance. I'm not doing no American Idol. You know, she's like, no, you got to do him. All my friends love him. So he came by the studio. And again, all the guys in the studio were like, my wife loves him. <laughs> so I was like, okay, good enough for me. Yeah. You know, so uh, yeah. And then the record, I remember making that record thinking, this is either going to sell tons of copies or nothing. Like, because it's rock pop. We'll get on pop radio. Mm-hmm. Who knows, right? It's either the best of both worlds or the or, worst. Or the worst. You right. Know? And so we had this razor's edge. We had to, to, you know, and to Chris's credit, Chris came through with the vocals. His vocals were stunning on that record, you know, and we, you know, we also had the zeitgeist in our favor. Like that's sometimes a big part of it. Is well, like, that's what you're talking about is I can, you know, the, the baseball analogy. Yeah. If we can, we, we can do everything in our power to make a successful album. Exactly. And then. That's right. You yeah. know. So, all right. Well, I have to let you go. Um, this really has been a pleasure. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you for about uh, 
25 years now. Now you know everything you want to know about Pretty Boy Floyd. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, Howard Benson, uh, you've worked on Three Days Graces, Three Days Graces, number one single, The Mountain of Mice and Men's new album, Defy, and you got more stuff in the shoot as always. Thank as you. As always. Thank you so much.